Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist, and I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I am speaking to Rahel Heinemann, who is a licensed mental health counsellor based in New York City and Brooklyn. She specialises in the treatment of eating disorders and emotional eating, as well as exercise addiction and body image struggles. Rahel also works extensively with those challenged by depression, anxiety, relationship difficulties and career stress. Rahel is trained as a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. She works with her clients to find meaning in their lives and attain long-lasting results. In addition to her practice, Rahel has taught courses in eating disorders and body image at undergraduate programs and high schools. She also provides consultation and education to members of the community. As a psychotherapist, Rahel recognises that after many clients no longer use eating disorder symptoms, they don't feel better. In fact, they can often feel worse. And it's often because the work on the emotional component of recovery is missing. Today, Rahel is going to explore the connections between emotional experience and food-related behaviours. Often emotions felt around food, for example guilt or anxiety, may not only be about food but the deeper issues too. Food behaviours create distance from the emotion and can distract from the core issue that might need addressing. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation today as I'm a firm believer myself in working on these deeper blocks for change. In my own recovery, this work has been essential for full healing and finding my true peace with food. So let's get to the interview. Hi, Rahel, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So Rahel, please would you introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Rachel Heinemann. I am a psychotherapist in Brooklyn and New York City. So just a bit away from you. I specialize <laughs> in eating disorders and exercise addiction, body image stuff as well as depression and anxiety and relationship stuff. I'm also trained analytically. So what that means is that I just do a lot more deep work therapy. And I, before the pandemic, I was teaching an undergrad course in eating disorders. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much me. Mm, okay, well, thank you. And so Rahel, how did you sort of decide to train as a psychoanalytic psychotherapist? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. It's not something that I set out to do originally. I think that being a client on the other side of the chair, a lot of the behavioral stuff just never worked for me. I think that I didn't, I never feel, felt understood particularly. I never fit into a box. I probably never will. And when I was working with therapists who were much more curious about the details about why, and my sort of individual experience, that's when I actually made progress. And so when I was in grad school, I got an internship at an analytic institute and I absolutely loved it. I continued to train there and then things kind of fell into place from there. Okay. No, sure. So it sounds like for you as well, like having experienced different types of therapy, 
the more analytic approach where there was perhaps more curiosity, more exploring of the kind of deeper issues that really kind of helped you or enabled you to sort of open up or understand yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of times, you know, I can read the book, I can listen to the podcast. I knew a lot of the stuff that, you know, let's say the behavioral therapists were saying. And I was like, okay, but how do I do that? It's not that simple. You don't just do whatever it is. So it felt actually particularly invalidating when it was like, okay, here are the three things you need to do. But when we started to explore how I got in my own way, and this is kind of how I work with my clients, how are you getting in your own way that you're not able to utilize the knowledge that you already have is when, you know, much more significant change happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, I think I really resonate with you because I know myself in my own recovery from an eating disorder, that it was the deeper work. I truly believe that's helped me to come out the other side and have, you know, a truly healed relationship with food. So yeah, I'm kind of with you on the deeper work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and don't get me wrong. I think the behavioral stuff is absolutely imperative, especially when working with the eating disorder population, that a lot of this stuff isn't even possible in the beginning. I mean, as, as I'm sure, you know, mm. when, when someone is malnourished cognitively, they can't engage in this sort of work. They're not there yet. And so that's sort of the foundation in order to get to this part. But it's, you know, when we stop at the behavioral stuff is when we're selling ourselves short. Yeah, no, sure. And absolutely. I think you you definitely need, well, I'm going to say this is again, supporting my own practice as an integrative counselor, but you know, I do (laughs) believe you kind of need the both. You need the, the symptoms and the deeper work. So what's really interesting, Rahel, is obviously, I think it's a very common thing. Again, I'm talking more about eating disorders at the moment, where people may have had some treatment, they've had quite a lot of focus, maybe on their symptoms, they've maybe weight restored, they've maybe stopped binging, but they come out the other side of that, and they're still not feeling any better. Maybe sometimes they're actually even feeling worse because of, and they're not even really understanding perhaps quite what's going on there because they perhaps feel like I should be recovered now because you know I'm I'm doing like regular eating I've restored the weight so can you say a bit more about what might be going on there or what might be missing maybe in their recovery yeah absolutely I mean the phrase it's it's all about the food it's not about the food at all is is something we use all the time and for good reason because when someone develops an eating disorder it's usually not so much about, or or it's definitely not only the pursuit of weight loss or whatever else the pursuit is. It's usually about some underlying issues that are connected to their emotional experience. And so if we targeted the behaviors, we dealt with all the surface stuff and how the eating disorder has been manifesting to the eye, but the stuff underneath the relationships, the emotional deficits, the past experiences, that hasn't been addressed at all. And so, of course, they're still struggling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no, it makes a lot of sense. And can you give some examples maybe of perhaps different life experiences sometimes that may be perhaps contributing to eating disorder behaviors? Yeah, absolutely. And this is also, it's a little difficult to do just because everyone's experience is so drastically different. But, you know, just some themes, and I know that you talked about this once a bit ago, but just, you know, the experience of trauma, a lot of people come in with any sort of physical, emotional, 
or sexual trauma, which is really, really difficult to process, especially at a young age. And so what they'll do is kind of dissociate themselves from their emotional experience. This is probably not a conscious sort of process, but a lot of that stuff is still under the surface. And so really tough emotions are kind of lingering and then they are coming out in all different ways. So I would say a trauma background, difficult relationships at home or in school, like not feeling like they belong or not feeling like they're cared for enough or paid attention to, you know, where Mm -hmm. let's say if the parent is kind of almost immersed in themselves in some sort of way, whether it's like a health issue, a mental health issue, or they're just not attuned to their kids. So the kid won't really kind of get their needs met at home, school with friends. If they don't feel like they fit in, that's also a big theme. And then we also can't discount there is a certain aspect of being exposed to this kind of stuff. So with the entire world being obsessed with diet culture, there is sort of this kind of predisposition that you're kind of exposed to it. And therefore that's what you'll gravitate yourself to. And so that's maybe how somebody might develop an eating disorder besides for a small biological sort of predisposition, but why, why they might develop an eating disorder as opposed to maybe an addiction or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you for explaining that. And I think it's just such a good point, isn't it? That it's, it's very different, really, for each individual. There's no kind of absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but definitely. I mean, I think that whole kind of the fact that we live in a kind of diet culture world, and then as well, maybe if you've got a bit of a genetic predisposition then different traumas or different events come along, it could leave you quite vulnerable, couldn't it, to developing an eating disorder or, or another mental health condition. Absolutely. And just to kind of echo, it is that eating disorders are the perfect storm, that they happen with all of these components together. And that's what, you know, when, when someone develops an eating disorder, as opposed to, oh, you had a family member struggle with eating disorder, and therefore you'll also have one, or you experienced a trauma and therefore you'll have an eating disorder. It's so much more complex. There's, there's so many people who experience hardships and they're totally fine because they had a support system who were able to be there for them. And so, you know, really Mm -hmm. teasing out one cause quote cause is completely impossible and and frankly, not true. Mm, Yeah, very true. So, Rahel, in terms of, I know one of the reasons I was really keen to get you on the podcast is, you know, obviously your experience in working with this kind of deeper work and looking at the underlying kind of emotional stuff. So could you say a bit more about perhaps sometimes the connection between someone's emotional experience and then their food-related behaviors? Could you just explain that in a little bit more detail? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any sort of time we... I mean, this is putting even the food aside. Anytime we behave, we interact, we make decisions, it's all based on our emotional experience, whether we like it or not, whether it's conscious or unconscious. And so when we choose to restrict binge or, you know, I'll use choose in quotes because very Mm. often it's not this more active choice. It's always because of our emotional experience. And it's usually because of an unconscious emotional experience. So just to give a little bit more of context, if somebody says, oh, I binged, I felt really guilty after, then guilt is code for, okay, that's where we have to look a little deeper because there will never be these sort of eating disorder behaviors that are not attached to emotions, obviously, besides for somebody who is so severely dissociated from their emotional experience that they can't 
feel them just yet, in which case they have to do a lot more work in order to get in touch with them. But I would say always related to the emotions. Mm, Sure. And I guess as well, it's such an interesting thing, isn't it? Because a lot of this is unconscious and someone, you know, maybe when they're experiencing this intense guilt about eating, they may just have no awareness about the guilt being linked to something else. You know, it, it, it might be completely out of their awareness. Yeah, I might actually add that it has to be out of their awareness because otherwise mm. the behavior serves no more purpose. And so mm. if there is guilt that feels so intolerable to feel or pretty threatening to feel, it's a lot simpler or easier and less threatening to feel it as associated with food or a food related behavior than toward a person or toward a life event. And so it's definitely a really important piece to it. Mm. And is that the reason that's why it's so hard to feel the emotion in its raw form? You know, maybe if you were genuinely in touch with the guilt or whatever emotion it is in relation to a person or a life event, maybe that's intolerable or unbearable. Yeah, absolutely. And so channeling it through, let's say, food or a binge, it's a lot more, and we can even just use the word accepted, you can feel guilty about overeating, but Mm. feeling guilty about something else might come with its own slew of issues. And that feels really, really, really hard to feel. And so the only way that this person knows how to feel whatever it is, is through the food. So if you kind of get at using, let's say we're using the example of guilt, if we use that as a clue, then we can try to piece some pieces together as to what the guilt is actually about instead of, you know, just assuming that it's about the food. But, you know, just one more thing I'll add is that we're not saying that this person doesn't feel guilty about a binge. It's Mm. absolutely real. It's just about something else also And we have to just dig deeper. Yeah, no, sure. So how does someone even begin the process of getting (laughs) a bit more clarity on this if it's something that's quite unconscious? You know, how would you support them with that? (laughs) That's a very good question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, we can try to break it down. I just want, you know, I'll, I'll put out there that this process takes a really long time, months and really often Mm. years to get at some of these sort of patterns, underlying issues, past experiences. So it's not the kind of thing you can just take out a piece of paper and jot down a few notes and do the exercise and boom, you're fixed forever. You know, it's, it's the beginning of a conversation. So I just want to caveat that, mm. you know, before we, we, before we dive in. But I will say just kind of like, you know, in terms of organizing this for, for some of the listeners to understand, I think the very first thing is just organizing the behavior, organizing what is happening today. And when I say organizing, you know, let's say if it's with a client of mine, we'll go through a lot of the details. Let's say they're talking about a binge. I will ask them every single detail. what did you eat? How much? When was it? Who were you with? What were your thoughts? What were your feelings? Every single question. And part of the reason why I do this for myself is because a lot of people talk in hyperbole. And so I want to make sure that I have accurate detail, but also it's a lot more grounding to talk through the narrative. And then we can start from there as opposed to starting from a point of overwhelm. So I would say organizing, even if you have to write it down, is Mm -hmm. the very, very first step. And then 
The next piece, which we kind of touch on in the organization piece, is really getting at the thoughts and the feelings before, during, and after the behavior. So, you know, as much as the person's able to identify, this is often really difficult. But if you had any idea what you were feeling before, during, and after, to really tease that out, and I would add to the feelings, I would add the thoughts also, especially if they're spiralizing, spiraling out of control. So there's the identifying the feelings. And then once we have those feelings and thoughts, we can start to piece some pieces together. What was happening before, an hour before, the morning of, the week before, even the month before, or even longer, and put some of the pieces Mm. together of the past, the immediate past in terms of how did it trigger the more long-term past and how that connected with the behaviors using the feeling as a clue if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, that no, makes a lot of sense, actually, because I, th- I think of something I say to my own clients as well is that often, again, using the example of binge eating, maybe, but I often think of it as a binge is almost like the end point of a whole kind of accumulation of things that have been building for a long time. Absolutely. I mean, you can't see me, but I'm like nodding away. Absolutely spot on. So could you give like a kind of hypothetical client example to sort of explain this a little bit more in terms of perhaps some of the typical thoughts and feelings that someone might be experiencing? Yeah, that's probably a good idea because we're, we're talking a little bit more theory. So just kind of make this a little bit more real. Yeah, I mean, I can talk about, I'll probably talk about someone who's more of a combination of a few people that I've worked with in the past. So, you know, just, just to make things simple, let's give her a name so she can be called Valerie. So she struggles with binging, over-exercising and restricting. So a lot of the behaviors that we sort of analyze are these behaviors and you know, not surprisingly, the one that stands out to Valerie the most is the binging because the overexercising and the restriction doesn't quite bother her so much mm. as per usual. So, you know, a lot of our, our conversations revolve around the binge. So I would say if she comes in and says, I went home for the weekend, so let's say she w- lives in New York City, which is, you know, one of the most romanticized cities in the world. Mm-hmm. She's really successful at her job and, and, she says, I went home for the weekend to my parents and we were doing movie night and I completely binged. I ate everything in the house and I feel terrible. I'm going to go to the gym for X amount of hours and I'm just not going to eat for X amount of hours. And so the very first thing that I'll do with Valerie is like, okay, let's slow down for a second. First of all, what happened last night? What time was it set the scene for me? Even like if it would help, what movie were you watching? What kind of ice cream was it? How much of it? What did you order after that? How much of it did you eat? Were your parents around? Were there any other people around? Really giving all the details. So she'll tell me, yeah, so we had this much ice cream and then we ordered it and I had this much of the order. And I'm specifically not giving too many details just because I don't want this to be triggering Mm. in any sort of way, but, you know, just really, really the details of it. And then I'll ask, okay, so how'd you feel? What were your feelings? What were your thoughts? And for, let's just use Valerie as an example. She has a really hard time identifying emotions. So the things that she's, the, the feelings that she's able to identify after the binge, I felt disgusting. I felt gross. Those are the only things that she's able to identify. And so, okay, that's perfect. What are your thoughts? 
And so her thoughts are, I have to go to the gym. I can't go to work tomorrow. I have to, you know, skip breakfast or whatever, you know, the specific thoughts we work with what we can get. And so once we have those in place, then we can kind of take a step back and say, okay, so we have the details. We have some of the thoughts and the feelings. Tell me what was going on that day. So she says, okay, I took the train home back to my parents. I felt a little bit kind of anxious about going back. I hadn't seen them in six months and, you know, really working through the day. And when I say working through, I I almost mean just giving the details of the day are also really important. When we did more work and I would say, you know, again, she's more of a, a combination of a lot of people, but with this particular sort of, you know, we'll get to sort some conclusions. This is work in progress that took months, I would say like almost two years to get to. So she's the kind mm-hmm. of person that has a really beautiful relationship with her parents and turns out not really, but only 18 months into treatment, which mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to kind of like say that everybody has a terrible relationship with their parents because there are so many parents that are really, really great. I think that, you know, specifically for her, she had a lot of ambivalences toward them. They were so they were financially successful and really helped her financially and helped her get a really, really good job. She was extremely successful at work and they weren't particularly around very much. And so she had a lot of ambivalences toward them. So just going back to the binge, she would say, I felt disgusting. I felt gross. And, you know, in this sort of case, especially in the beginning, she didn't have the vernacular to put some of the feelings. So if I can hear that she is feeling disgust or, you know, something like that with her body, I can ask her, well, did you feel guilty? Did you feel regret? And she would identify with the guilt. Yeah, yeah, I felt really guilty. So to me, that's my clue. Okay, something Mm -hmm. about this situation makes her feel guilt and she is home with her family. Something about that feels like one of those corner pieces to the thousand piece puzzles that are really, really, really important. And so through the years, we talk about her, you know, what she what came out as more ambivalence toward her parents, that she felt incredibly guilty to be angry at both of her parents for not really being around because they did so, so much for her and on the outside. And really, I mean, really overall, they were wonderful people, but that just didn't give her enough of what she needed. And she felt terribly angry at them and did not feel like she could feel that anger and felt tremendously guilty. And so here we come back to the key of the guilt that this binge kind of triggered her thoughts around her relationship with her parents and brought back all of this stuff where her anger and then the guilt about the anger. And it came out in a binge where it, it kind of just seemed like a binge, but it was really about so, so much more. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting talking it through, isn't it? And I think just that example you've used there as well is something that is quite common with people with eating disorders, maybe not feeling permission to feel angry or to sort of have the whole spectrum of feelings. Because I guess, it, you know, it's a very natural thing as a human, isn't it, that we might really <laughs> love a parent 
and sometimes feel angry with them you know that's kind of that's the kind of normal part of the human experience but sometimes we just don't feel permission to have the whole spectrum of emotions exactly yeah and I will add you know just to complicate things a tad is that (laughs) for some people the anger actually doesn't feel tolerable because if they're angry with a parent and I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little bit psychoanalytic on you as a child or as a baby if they can't rely on the pain, the parent, or they're angry, their life is, is actually in jeopardy. And so it's in their best interest to either disavow that anger or bring it on them. Like, oh, it's my fault, which is a lot of people struggling with eating disorders, you know, take the blame for a lot of things and they put themselves down as opposed to the other people around them, because very simply for life preservation, they had to. And so it wasn't so much that they didn't have room for it just, you know, emotionally, it's, you know, physically also. And so we have to make room for all sorts of reasons why somebody doesn't feel okay to feel their feelings and something like this, because the emotion is so young and this is kind of going a little bit off, but it's pre-verbal. And so they won't have the vernacular to do so, which is kind of where we get into the feeling again, as a clue, we can do a little bit more somatic work. What does your body feel like? Do a head to toe scan of your body and tell me the different sensations that are involved. Because a lot of the work that we do is processing pre-verbal emotional experiences. Mm. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's so true, isn't it? It's often that really early stuff that has so much impact and it's kind of survival, isn't it? Like you don't want to be abandoned by your parents or it can feel like that if you're you know, you want to kind of conform and be accepted, don't you? You don't want to feel sort of rejected from the tribe. Exactly. Yes. Mm. I guess as well, what's really interesting, because I think as well, I'm a parent and I think huge compassion to parents because, of, <laughs> you know, it's a hard job. Um, oh, absolutely. <laughs> but I think as well, the, the tricky thing as well, isn't it, is I think that as a parent, in a way, you can only support your child with their emotions as much as you've kind of worked on your own emotions and absolutely yeah and and, you know obviously as well there may be many different reasons why you haven't been able to work on your emotions because of you know your experience maybe you didn't have the privilege of having therapy or you know maybe you've just never had anyone that's been able to really listen to you so you're kind of going into like the parenting experience in a way, kind of not even realizing maybe that that bit's missing, you know, you're doing the absolute best you can. So I think it's a a difficult thing, isn't it? Because I think as a child as well, if you're being, you know, you can be really perhaps loved, know you're loved, know you're cared for, be really kind of nurtured and have a very positive experience in many ways. But if that emotional part is lacking, you know, maybe where there's not an adult, you know, maybe for very understandable reasons, like you said before, like they're struggling with their mental health, or it could just be so much going on in life. But if there's something that perhaps prevents them being able to sort of be really present and see you as the child and validate your feelings, in a way, you can have all the material stuff in the world, can't you? And, and, and even lots of love, but that emotional bit is so crucial for our mental health growing up. Absolutely. And just another piece of reassurance as a parent, you you only have to be good enough because no mm. one's going to be perfect ever. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true, isn't it? And I just think, I mean, I really want to stress as well. I just think huge compassion for parents because I think 
even like with all my training and the experience I've had, you know, parenting is still very challenging. And <laughs> yeah, you know, we're, we're all on this kind of journey together. So and I think there's so much pressure on parents these days to kind of like do a really good job. And I think what we don't want is for like this whole subject area to be another kind of stick to beat yourself with about not being a good enough parent. Yeah, absolutely not. And that's kind of where things probably even get it, get worse, where it's like, oh, here's another thing to worry about. Yeah, we're not kind of like pinning it on the parents right now. This is more so. And even just for Valerie, her parents were lovely. Mm-hmm. She just need a little bit more emotional attention. And, you know, that's that's about it. I think the whole the whole point was that she's ambivalent about her relationship. It's not that it was a terrible relationship at all. Yeah. Sure. And I think it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think sometimes as well, it's those ambivalent relationships that can be more challenging because say if you have mm-hmm. someone in your life who's just an outright tyrant or kind of you know, <laughs> really obviously just not being great for you, maybe it's almost easier to kind of just think, okay, well, you know, I don't want them in my life or, you know, you can kind of put them to one side a bit. Whereas when you have a whole complexity of feelings about someone that you also really love and you have these more difficult feelings, it can be hard to reconcile that, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. That kind of reminds me of a lot of the clients that I work with. You know, some of them have a pretty severe history of trauma and some of them have absolutely no history of trauma. And some of them say as much as they obviously would never have wanted that sort of history, that they're understanding their eating disorder or whatever they're struggling with, you know, making decisions, their career, it would be so much easier if there was a clear cut person who was terrible to them or a clear cut experience that was terrible. And what we find often is that most people don't have that. And Mm. it's so much more complicated to tease all these pieces out because it's not there. There wasn't like a, a tyrant in their life or something like that. Yeah, no, I think such a good point, isn't it? It's all the the little kind of nuance, really, of so many little bits coming together. And it can be quite challenging, can't it, to untangle that big knot? (laughs) Yes, hence why it usually takes years (laughs) to do. Sure. So, Rahel, as well, I know you also use like metaphor as well in your work. So could you say a bit more about that? Oh, sure. I usually like to use this mainly for for some people who consider themselves on the other side of recovery. So they're in recovery. So they don't normally use behaviors, but they have a lot of the urges. So kind of what you were alluding to before, where they don't feel that great, but their eating disorder isn't apparent anymore to the people around them. So very often with these people, I like to ask them questions that kind of, yeah, they kind of, we use metaphors a lot. So for example, if somebody is engaging in a binge, there is something about that behavior that indicates some sort of hunger. Now, if they're not physically hungry, then what can they emotionally be hungry for? And asking the question in that way, or, you know, if somebody is, is restricting what's making you full are really good questions to ask because it kind of takes the behavior into a whole new level of exploration. Mm. yeah no that's so helpful isn't it just to kind of really like take that step back and look at it on a more meta level 
Exactly. Or, you know, a lot of people use the sort of like eating disorders are all about taking control, which is not necessarily true. But if it is true for an individual, you know, let's just say with the overexercise, they're trying to quote, take control. So what are you trying to control? What feels out of control to you in your body? What part of your body feels out of control? You know, things like that are are really good questions to ask. Mm, That's great. So I'm just thinking as well, like I'm thinking of like some of my clients that I work with, perhaps particularly with anorexia, so restrictive eating disorders. Sometimes they may be like so cut off from their emotions, you know, because I guess like restriction over exercise, it's a very like in inverted commas, <laughs> effective way of kind of spinning really fast, isn't it? Almost on that hamster wheel. So in a way, mm. you're just very disconnected from your emotions. So how would you kind of like with someone that is so cut off, like, where would be your like starting point? Do you think with someone like that, just the first baby step? That's a really good question. I think what's imperative, something that I was talking about before that I'm sure you do as well is to make sure that they're on the road to weight restoration and cognitive you know, to be Mm. able to access their, their brain space completely. So I think that that's, you know, going to be the most important piece because a lot of this work won't be possible for them until that happens. But Mm. once that happens, I think, you know, one thing that's really helpful is I'll give them a little bit more of a multiple choice. So in this situation, I can imagine that somebody might either feel sad, angry, or anxious you know, do you feel any of them? And I would usually go one at a time, like, oh, I wonder, you know, like most people would, or, or I wonder if you would feel sad. I wonder if you feel angry or anxious one at a time, and they'll say yes or no, which means that they're not able to come up with the name of the feeling, but if I give it to them, they might be able to say yes or no. So I think that that's Mm -hmm. the very first step that actually helps them sort of gain the vernacular and put it in the back of their head. If we do this enough, they can start to come up with the name of the feeling themselves. And very often what's helpful is, you know, you know, those emotion wheels that Mm. you find online, it starts with like the basic ones and they kind of go out. So even having that in front of them, just to have the names of the feelings so that they can identify them is one really good tool that I use in the beginning. And then the other thing is to get in touch with their body, which of course, you know, to do this much more gingerly, especially with trauma victims to not really draw too much attention to the body too early on in the process. Mm. But, you know, the head to toe scan that I had referred to earlier, where do you feel anything? Are your, your palms sweaty? Are your, do you, do your legs have, have extra energy? Are you kind of jittery? Is your heart pounding? And then another question that I like to use is how do you know that you're feeling, let's say they're feeling anxious. How do you know? How do you know that you're not feeling angry in this moment? What's the difference in your body? Like, Mm. give me a list. So really bringing them back to the somatic experience of the feeling really helps build the foundation for a lot of these conversations. Mm. yeah no sure and it sounds so helpful and just it's just really it's kind of like such slowing it all down isn't it and then mm-hmm. you know I love the multiple choice thing as well but you're almost like tentatively helping people explore if this if it might be this feeling or that feeling and then as well just tuning into the body and it, I guess for some people as well it's kind of almost like learning to do that isn't it for the very first time 
Exactly. So this is something that maybe we had hoped for them to learn a little bit earlier, but mm. because they haven't, they're just going to start now. And so, mm. you know, really small, especially let's say with kids, we start with the more basic feelings. Oh, that's really sad or that's really upsetting, you know, really vague sort of emotions. We start with that and then we can kind of narrow them down into something a little bit more intricate. So they are learning something for the very first time. Yeah, no, so true. I just wondered as well, Rahel, actually, what were your thoughts on the film Inside Out about (laughs) the emotions? (laughs) I actually am trying to think if I even remember it. It's been so many years. So I don't know if I can give an accurate sort of depiction of it. But I mean, it was definitely quite cute. I think that any sort of emotional talk with kids is good. Just because, you know, especially with the clients that I see, they're almost allergic to feelings. It's like, Ugh, feelings. I don't, I, don't, mm. I don't have those. I don't, you know, what are those? Those are for like touchy feely people. So even, you know, putting the film aside just because, you know, I don't want to. Yeah. I'm no, sorry to put you on the spot with that. <laughs> no, it's just, I, I remember it was, it was really cute. And I honestly can't say I remember anything else. <laughs> yeah. Of it. But any sort of talk I think is good. Do you have a specific question about the film? that'll just just quite general because I think I found it I mean I feel like a few years ago when it was out I at the time I did get some of my clients to watch it because it really helped it was almost like kind of a story about this little girl and then showing the five emotions or the fine five kind of main types of emotions in her head and it's just quite helpful actually just to kind of really normalize I guess that's you know, everybody feels a range of emotions, you know, it's kind of normal to feel disgust, sadness, anxiety, joy, you know, the whole range. And it showed as well in the film, sort of what happened when the little girl was just trying to be joyful and to please the people around her. And when she was trying to sort of shut off her sadness, and kind of what happened to her then in terms of her mood and sort of becoming quite numb. So, I mean, I think, you know, I, I guess there's probably pros and cons to that film. And if you want it to be too, you know, I guess it's probably not purely scientific if you wanted to really scrutinise it. But I think there's some quite good messages from it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. Mm, yeah, for sure. And I'm just thinking as well, like you were just saying about how a lot of people, perhaps this is my word here, but perhaps feel a bit icky about emotions or don't want to go there or feel like that's just really uncomfortable you know they kind of and it makes me think a bit as well of in Brené Brown's TED talk about vulnerability like when mm-hmm. Brené went for therapy she was sort of saying you know just give me some skills and some strategies <laughs> you know I don't want to talk about yes. the past and I think that is often the approach we can have isn't it you know we kind of don't want to go there we want to like fix it Exactly. But just a little bit of a reminder that our emotions are there as indicators. They let us know how to behave and interact in the world. And without them, we would have absolutely no idea. Kind of similar to the sensations that we feel through touch. If we touched a hot stove, if we didn't have the physical sensations in our fingertips, we wouldn't know to remove our hand from the stove and then it'd be burned. And so even take anxiety, if somebody is caught in a really dangerous situation, if they weren't anxious, you know, let's say they were just scrolling on their phone, completely oblivious oblivious to the fact that like, I don't know, there's a kidnapping situation, they wouldn't know to run away. That is awful. We need those emotions. So we kind of just want to feel them in their raw form and not kind of, you know, blown out of proportion or in too much or too little. So it's really, really important just for daily functioning. 
Mm. Yeah, I like to think of them almost as like a kind of internal barometer, aren't they? That kind of, they're kind of guiding you. (laughs) And I think the tricky thing is, as well, like you're saying there about not too much, not too little almost. And I think the danger is when we numb our emotions or disconnect from Mm -hmm. them, one day we can suddenly then be overwhelmed with them, can't we? You know, pushing them under the carpet and one day you kind of lift the carpet up and whoosh you're overwhelmed (laughs) exactly Mm. yeah and it's tricky isn't it because I think as well if you get into that cycle then it can kind of reinforce the fact that you feel like emotions are unbearable or overwhelming I don't want to go there but they've only become unbearable in a way because you're kind of disconnecting from them day to day exactly which is why we kind of ease into them and you know, especially why therapy is helpful so that you can have someone who's really supportive and helping you through to kind of teach yourself that I can do this, even if it's terribly uncomfortable. Mm. Well, thank you, Rahel, for sharing your wisdom, because I think it's just been such an interesting discussion and probably something we haven't really opened up that much on the podcast before. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. So Rahel as well, can I ask you as well, if people want to find out more about you or, you know, do you have a website or Instagram or anything that you want to put out there? Yeah, well, they can find me on my website. It's rachelheineman.com or on Instagram. I am rheinemanlmhc, which is my credentials, or you can type in my name and you can find me there. Okay, that's lovely. Well, I'm sure like people might be in touch and perhaps wanting to ask questions or maybe seek you out for therapy. Yeah, well, I'm sure there are probably a lot more questions after than there were before. So feel free to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. All right, have a good one. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. Do go and check out all of Rahel's information in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And for further support with your relationship with food, do visit my website at theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. If you'd like to support this podcast, do enroll in my Patreon and there's more information about that in the show notes. And I would be so grateful if you enjoyed this episode, if you would rate and review it as it helps the podcast reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon.